Welcome back to the Brooklyn Poets Yobcast for November 14th, 2016, featuring poet Miller Oberman leading the workshop and kicking off the open mic. I am your host and MC, Jason Koo. The Brooklyn Poets Yop is held on the second Monday of every month at 61 Local in Cobble Hill. That's at 61 Bergen Street, off Smith Street, near the FG stop. For more information about the Brooklyn Poets Yop, go to brooklynpoets.org. This month's open mic lineup featured Tess Congo, Candy Wolf, Laura Plaster, Sarah Passino, Harvey Sauce, Judy Schneier, Anam Satar, Abby Sayer, Richard Fine, Dalima Mendez, Robert Gibbons, Joe Nasta, Julia Knobloch, Arthur Russell, Del Lemon, Julie Hart, Nawal Maradovich, and Timothy Wojcik. So let's get right to the action. The Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic. Have a listen. Welcome back. How's everyone doing? Hi, Jace. Thank you, Arthur. I want you to feel welcome. I know. Yeah. Uh, this is the Brooklyn Poets Yop open mic. Great to see everybody. Good to be back. I was thinking uh, at the beginning of the workshop when I said it was like one of the five worst weeks of human history. That was probably an exaggeration because I was thinking of like way back in the day, which is probably a lot. There was like 18 million Trumps running around and raping people. <laughs> so it's probably improved since then, but uh, still, not a great week. Uh, not a great week for American lives. Uh, just wanted want to keep our perspective. Uh, civilization has probably advanced a little bit since, like, you know. 20,000 BC. Um, if you haven't been here before, you get three minutes on the mic. Uh, I ask you keep to that time carefully because there are other poets that have signed up and there are people on the wait list that are sort of like, they're like the zombies in The Walking Dead, anxious, anxiously waiting for like, a crap of daylight. Uh, well, that show lately has just been like all fucking vegan, right? It's like really getting annoying. How many of you watch The Walking Dead? Wow, I'm so <laughs> what the hell? You guys are poets, you're supposed to be watching The Walking Dead. It's like uh, endless drama every weekend. Although they did kill the, the greatest Asian American male uh, actor yeah. ever. <laughs> the, the one guy that was able to kiss a, a non Asian human on American television has been killed. So I'm sorry to ruin it for you. <laughs> I was really probably, I was really rooting for Glenn Reed, and, uh, but he's gone now. Um, what else? Uh, it's, I know you're. Done. I'm gonna remember all of them, Arthur. So uh, besides the three-minute time limit, every month we vote for poem of the month, and this is an especially important month because this is the last month that you can win a spot to the coveted poet of the poem of the year SmackDown, which is in the December. Right? I don't know what date that is. The second Monday of December is where all the shit goes down. All 12 winners of Poem of the Year come together and battle it out 
with their words. <laughs> uh, that will also be decided by audience vote. Uh, there are many Home of the Month winners in the audience. I can't even remember you all now, so don't be offended, but they're in here somewhere. There's a few of them. Uh, if, you, if you read a great poem, people can text me, vote for your poem, and you will win Home of the Month if you get enough votes. So my number now, if you don't know it, and I will repeat this throughout the night, 718-374-1953. I like how I'm just like staring at the intensity like I'm burning that number into my head. <laughs> uh, thank you. 718-374-1953. That is how you vote for poem of the month. You can just say the name of the poem, or if you can uh, remember the poet's name, that's great. You can send me like emojis that might compile into the poetry or poem somehow. I don't know. Uh, you can be creative. Um, and uh, what else? What else is there? Arthur? There's another announcement. Is that it? Uh, you don't want to be on the Yawcast. Right. Every month we record. See, it's good to have Arthur here. Every month we record the <laughs> that one reason. Yeah. <laughs> and your general, you know, good qualities. Uh, every month we record the Yawk over my app. We publish it as the Brooklyn Poets Yawkcast, which is a podcast uh, on iTunes. You can subscribe to it, and it's also on SoundCloud. So if you don't want to be in the recording, you need to tell me, because otherwise we assume that you're okay with us making you famous, as, uh, as many poets here are. Okay, are we ready? That was so lame. <laughs> Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, are you ready? Yeah. Our first vote of the night is our fearless workshop leader. Ready to go. Give it up for Miller Oberman.
The Ruin, um, which an amazing poet and friend of mine, Penelope Pelazon, calls the party poem. <laughs> she prefers to think of it as a party that hasn't happened yet. Um, so I hope that's true. The Ruin. Down the cobbles and across the canal, where the sodium lights of illegal houseboats bob in the current, my compass gets stuck. There, my friend points, and we go to the chalk-marked door, tug the chain and pulley, and roll under the gate. Someone dancing, masked, half Lady Liberty, half skeleton. The steam vents chug over the musicians, wearing nothing but brass. Tubas, trumpets, trombones blast the crowd. A crush of warriors stomps the beat, clashing swords, percussive. Someone unbuttons their stolen prison uniform, pulls a chainsaw from between sweating thighs, starts it, hefts it, cuts a gaping window to reveal the canal. We watch the water world, toxic. Someone's passing around clear spirits in corked jars. Bitter as winter berries, it sizzles the tongue, like tasting sparks, like licking a raw, stripped tree. Someone with hair made entirely of peacock feathers starts the generator, plugs a mic into an amp, and after the electric squeals the cord, rasps, we are here, we are here. We open the cathedrals of our chests and roar. My friend leans into the wind, blowing through the fresh cut hole, eyes round as shields, hawk gold. We do not have to touch to touch. We dance, hundreds, thousands. We shake the night with peacock in the slinky dress of shimmering wet tar. The canal catches fire. Trash islands burn like wicks floating in kerosene. Some of us have the beaks of hunting birds, the oiled armor of cockroaches, what the old book calls unclean. We are unclean. We burn what they build, make nothing to replace it, dance in a radioactive bone joy. And my friend, born in the seam of a coal mining town, grins at me in our ruined city, in magnesium flare dust, burned and burning. Yeah, we're gonna try. Uh, it's, it's, like, it's like a new thing that seems to be horrible. Uh, yeah, we've, we've added music downstairs on Monday. I, I asked him about it. I was like, great. Uh, so yeah, we'll try to get them lower. But uh, uh, I don't know how much lower it can go, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to yaw. You know, is, uh, if you don't know what that means, it means a sharp cry. And that is from music grass. Did you know that? Or did you think it was from Dead Poets Society? Some people think it's from Dead Poets Society, which is also true, but also false. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, by the way, uh, if you want to tweet this event, hashtag Broken Poets Yacht. I just tweeted, we open the cathedrals of our chests and roar, because that's awesome. Our next poet, I believe, is a Broken Poets Yop open mic debuter. Give it up for Tess Congo. Father, I've been drinking the stars. It's from a very readable poem. 
Father, I've been drinking the stars, and they taste so good. Like coconut rum warming my belly, my teeth glow, and I smile so bright, he must love me. He spreads me out in the grass and feeds me his fingers till they feel inside of me. Poking the pain pocketed in my chest, he grapples for my ribs, begging me for one, just one. For a souvenir, he says, so I'll remember you, he says. But I draw the lace back over my ribs, and his fingers fumble onto my fishnets, and he fucks them up so bad my thigh spills out, bright and white, and I feel like the moon falling out of the sky. I have to close my eyes and kiss him so hard, I'll never remember. And the second one, uh, the title is a, from a Rita Dove poem. If you feel strange things, strange things will happen. My chest springs up as if mimicking the plastic father of a kid's game we used to play, Don't Make Daddy. My chest feels like it's composed of moving dots, sparking my childhood fear that darkness is a cloak of black ants crawling my skin. People who are murdered in their sleep can't live or die, and they're straightjacketed by the fear that the door will shiver open, like a bamboo photo frame shuddering off the mantle, bursting into twigs, and the photo last photo we took, before our fingers unlatched from the monkey bars, before we fell through the air, the velocity chipping away our skin into maple seeds, what we called helicopters, when we were called monkeys, as if we had symbols clanking between our hands, and a key that every night our mother twisted out of our backs, as she said, sweet dreams. Y'all need to grow, you know. Between now and December, just grow. Um, yeah. Hey, or don't grow. I was, I was suddenly had a memory of my mom like measuring me as I was, and I was, because I used to be really short. She would like line me up next to like one of, one of these things and like pencil off. How many of you had moms that did that? Yeah. yeah. Or were moms. Or were moms. Uh, thank God I grew, because God knows what happened uh, to my self-esteem if I could stay the same part. That's, that's a poem right there. <laughs> my mom was wide enough my height, and it did move for 10 years. Our next poet is a very good poet. Give it up for Candy Wolf. Bro, <laughs> will you? Oh, can you hear me? This one is called The Nets, Harry the Wolf and Me. It was October 1973 in the cardiac care unit of Beacon Downtown Hospital, as I sat next to my father. The room had that sterile, rubbing alcohol cleansing odor that still made you want to wash your hands as soon as you left. 
My father was admitted for the removal of a kidney stone, then after being given an overdose of Demerol, went into cardiac arrest and fell into a coma. My father, Harry, was, was known for his charisma, kindness, and generosity. He was a trial lawyer and given the nickname Harry the Wolf by his cronies. Everyone agreed that to know him was to love him. He often bought the neighborhood kids ice cream on hot summer nights, drove me and my high school friends to school for our sing rehearsals, and brought food to neighborhood families with me in tow. He used to say that I was smart as a whip. My daddy was my pal. I even told him about my crushes, and he'd say, oh, boys want to feel in charge, so play hard to get. <laughs> I knew that sitting with him now was the most precious time that we would spend together. I told him jokes to get him to wake up and held his hand to keep him from being afraid while keeping all my tears inside until I got home and then I let them all out by crying in the shower. And then something came to me. I realized a way to get him to respond. I began watching the World Series that night so I, so I could tell him how the Mets were doing. We both loved the Mets, and we were regulars at Shane. So I began to give my animated version of each game, inning by inning. And I hoped that he'd hear me and then wake up with a smile. The best part of this time with him was when ever so often he began to squeeze my hand. His skin felt warm and smooth. He had very soft yet masculine hands and manicured fingernails. When I got excited and told the nurse about the hand squeezing, she said, oh, it's probably just a reflex. But I didn't buy that. He would do it when I said I loved him, and also did it when I told him that the Mets hit a home run. So I knew that she was wrong. It became a set routine that gave me a mission to help my father and also to get me through. <clears throat> A week later, on October 21st, the Mets lost to the Oakland A's, and my father passed away two days later. The World Series came and went that year, but those games that propelled my father to squeeze my hand will always be part of a special private treasure. Thank you. Serious, huh? Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, about that. but uh, you know it was a good year for Cleveland. Uh, I'm sure, you were all agreeing with me when they lost to the Cubs. I'm sure you were not any of those fair weather Cubs fans, right? Maybe oh, if you're from Chicago, that's one thing. I know the other thing is like definitely not rooting for the Cubs. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a hardcore Mets fan. Yeah. But uh, Rodney Davis always had that moment. Seemed like we were going to win two titles in one summer. And LeBron was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was great. Our next poet uh, might move to Baltimore soon, which is sad. And uh, I'll let her explain and uh, you know defend herself. Uh, <laughs> Laura Foster, get up for Laura.
Christina. <laughs> what? And so I don't care if it's good, but I wrote it. So I'm going to read it. So I, I didn't quite know what it was, but it's a six stanza poem and has the same six, the same six words repeat as the N word for the stanzas. And you have to pick words like home words, like words you use a lot. So I, I did the bridge because I write about the Brooklyn Bridge unsuccessfully a lot. <laughs> and then she said, it made me pick some words you're scared of. And so one of the words I picked was America. Um, <laughs> and then I also picked caissons, which are the things when you, they built the Brooklyn Bridge these big wooden boxes that are like sunk into the riverbed, um, which on top of which you fill the kind of pillars of the bridge. Um, and a lot of people, yeah, well, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Suspend. I keep returning to that bridge, like I keep returning to America, both things too big for the mind to hold, as the Brooklyn Bridge holds by caissons in the water somehow suspends itself in the sky for longer than it should, or longer than I think it should. This country too, like that beautiful fucking bridge, foolish really, the both of them, suspends my disbelief. I keep living in America like it is real, like the caissons I cannot see, but I believe hold their ground, because the bridge can hold the weight of tourists, rushing towards should see Dumbo, where Irish labor launched one of the caissons into the river, faithless, suspicious, a bridge too far to think that this wooden box in America would support an arch that suspends higher than ten times the gable suspends at the parish church where the faithful held vigil and prayed for those lost to America, those lost forever that should return and not give their bodies to that bridge, bending to the burden of air in the caissons, the burden of air and hunger. Caissons work received triple pay and suspended starvation, even placed bets at the bridge table. The distance between what we hold in our imagination and what is real should not be a surprise. In America, self-evident truths soar above America's other truths, which sink like caissons into the river of what should be, and won't unless it suspends with the bullshit, don't hold your breath, and builds bridges. And perhaps a poem can be a bridge, in the way that poems still hold foolish faith that artifice can and will suspend. Writing the Sistine is almost as difficult as building the Brooklyn Bridge. Right? <laughs> uh, so you can't leave. You write about, how do you write about caissons in Baltimore? I don't know. Yeah. There's probably no caissons in Baltimore. <laughs> was like, are, are there any? Uh, Laura was like, are there any things like Brooklyn poets in Baltimore? I was like, well, there's like the wire in, in Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna go, but that's uh, like the one great thing I know from, from Baltimore. Oh, John Waters. Cal Ripley doesn't sound great. No. There's really nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I'm recording this album. Just do it. Our next poet uh, was uh, graciously given the spot by Emily Blair. So this is like Emily Blair is like remember like ghost runners in baseball when you didn't have enough players. It's like her ghost run. Uh, is that a good introduction? Probably not. Uh, give it up for Sarah Pasito. Into which their flow 
all the dirty waters of history. I may say their discourse on colonialism. A friend posted on our feed the other day. They changed the definition of literally to figuratively. So I joked around all week, swapping the words. I figuratively can't find my keys, I told my husband as I rushed around searching. I literally flooded the house, I said, turning on and off faucets. Like all day, all summer, and into the fall I've been doing it. But I can't find her post now. And this morning when I was looking through her feed, looking for the source, there were all these pictures of otters, and I clicked on those. <laughs> and now all day I've just sat here and watched these two otters rolling over each other's otter bodies. Like that long paper you take end to end, the one where ants marching on the surface can't tell up from down, lost on that vast roiling strip. The otters swim swift waters, move to stay in place. I keep refreshing to see their to see do their faces face mine, their bodies bending together like an eight, like infinity, and I literally haven't stopped watching all day. Oil black, looping the loop of their soft bodies in this river, crown to rump, rump to crown, sliding one over the other discerning no edge, no weight, no empire. It makes fast, almost winter waters. But today I woke, trying to remember what yesterday felt like, to not feel edge, to not feel waters, to not know that the joke was never a joke, but was our language, washing out these banks, washing out our stinging eyes. I try to remember where I thought I ended and where I thought I began where the waters were, when I could not tell which side I was on, which was the right word, which one the one where the world washes away. Very nice. Very tall. Thank you. <laughs> A reminder to vote for poem of the night, 718-374-1953. Pretty soon I'm just going to get a fan <laughs> behind me, and then my home situation will worsen. Is Jay Jurgensen here? I think so. Allison Monaco? Okay, great. Our next poet of the evening is Harvey Sauce. Give it up for Harvey. Revisiting Muir Woods. Under the spreading chestnut tree isn't the way a poem about redwood should begin. Chestnut, pine, oak, larkspur, and a lot of lesser hard and soft woods being mere toothpicks in the mouth of God, a titan, or hunter-gatherer spirit guide who made redwood as a club to awe us with. Idling trucks of park workers shown on YouTube pulling man-sized loads up to and including 747s. 
fetal confusedly at the base of Sequoia Sempervirens. Unable to clear and cut lightning-charred branches, as even the thought of such fallen majesty turns misty-eyed lumberjacks into jackdaws. In the graduation role of species, these stand last and largest. No, the way to start a poem about redwoods is with a silence in the space between title line and first stanza, hand over heart, a pregame ritual of sorts, in which the ruler-specific world takes full measure of itself, and some celestial anthem is played. Ta-da, before we recommence our holiday and stretch our picnic baskets under the awesome redwood tree. is called I do not love the Titi fly. I do not love the Titi fly. I do not know the Titi fly. Should a tick tick drop in through woolly air filled with uncounted sheep, introducing itself as a sub-Saharan narco specialist, boasting a cure for insomnia. One that won't too much prick my wallet if only I will hold still. I shall blunt its seducements and lap it away. I keep a rolled up times literary supplement at bedside for carpet beetles, water bugs and the like, squashable night crawlers. But how shall I tell of a tsetse fly, unknown and perhaps unknowable, whispers of Rip Van Winkle in my ear and calls me dear glamouring me to go back to sleep. I fear the titi fly. In dreams, it comes to me in the guise of the girl next door, much buzzed about and unutterably beautiful, hurrying down a spiral staircase to be pinned with a prom corsage, beguiling me to abjure the critical cudgel, wildcatting drill bit hunched over me, eager to punch a borehole to oil-rich skin. You the next poet I know is closer to me in height. He's a good performer. Give it up for Judy Schneider.
they hide kids running on the turf and that giant TV that glares across the park. My room's the ship whose hold holds warm baths, curved pillows, and poems, and my yoga mat soft green foam. Could I float solo without his ship? When someday he sells it and sets me adrift to run aground so he can be more rich, where will my wide sails fit? A different room could be noisy or smell, the walls very thin, the space very small. I don't know. I don't know where I'll go when I'm old. He'll pull the floor from under me. I'll slip off the slope into Ridgewood, Hoboken, some small town upstate to reassemble my ship in old age. I hope I can be still and realign, feel my legs. Feel my spine. I'll just need a window to hang this fabric. I want to see soft light when I stand beside it. I'll rest and stretch with my radio. Melodies seep into soft green foam. I'll text my kids, tap poems in my phone. I may get new curtains then, just for a change. Ikea is so cheap. <laughs> I might get lace and see sunlight float through tiny holes to splash polka dot pictures on my walls, which won't be white. Oh no. I'll paint them yellow. I lived in Ikea. I lived in Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, I feel like Bed Bath & Beyond has a bigger selection. But it's like one of those things where I have to like, I have to make several trips just to like, scope it out first. You know? So I've already done like three or four trips. <laughs> I take pictures of the curtain. Maybe in 2017 I'll have curtains. Because I have an, a red Ikea chair that is is slowly becoming pink. I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to waste all of your time. You're not even a region editor. I can see that thought coming. My red chair is becoming pink because the light is just pulverizing this chair. So uh, one reason to get curtains. Your red IKEA chairs will change color. Our next quote of the evening <laughs> is I'm Satire. Give it up for Otto. Only a fairy tale. Act one. To 
not shed my leaves, I will be scorched in the sun. The trees, her daughters wailed, as the lumberjacks tore their parcels into shreds. Carrying not their cherries and apples away, how will they be adorned for their suitors? The mother pleaded as the leather boots trampled on her daughter's fallen fruits. Then one of the men lit a match and set the forest ablaze. Act two. The man sticks pitied the mother who buried her head in her apron. They jumped out of the cardboard box and circled around her. Fear us not, we come to atone our mistakes. Your misfortune is an unfinished fairy tale and we will write its happy ending. Wiping the tears trickling down her face, the mother looked at them and said, to seek forgiveness for fueling the fire, you must assist me to bless an ailing child, for a grieving mother can only find relief through healing the sad heart of another. Then suddenly, the mad sticks became aligned in ropes, glued to the back of a broken hand mirror to form the bristles of a brand new hairbrush. Act three. There, sitting upright on the hospital bed, the mother saw a young boy whose hair was falling out. What have we here, a shorn sheep? Here's a hairbrush to shepherd those flocks. Convinced he was daydreaming again, because how was he to explain the stunted old woman talking to him by his bed? The boy brushed the few clumps left on the scalp and drifted off to sleep, only to wake up at home in his old bed, astounded by the canopy of hair that had sprung like wild imaginings from his bald head. How incredible 
that there is a two-way line as deceptively simple as a game of telephone coffee cans that connects my mouth to the unmentionable center of me. Two. I have had a terrible cough ever since that night we didn't sleep. My voice grows dimmer by the hour. I walk up and down the aisles of a garishly lit drugstore through the man-made labyrinth perusing the stockpile on loan. Cough medicine, it occurs to me, red like blood in a bag, is made syrupy and sweet so it can be swallowed. It's easy to acquire. It comes in so many different bottles, different colors, different names, different companies, or maybe they're all the same. They all list the same side effects, and they all cough about the same thing, and while my symptoms may be suppressed, none of them actually promises to cure anything. Three. But to say it's all over is both an understatement and a casually sinister lie. Still, the days are much shorter now. The drafty rooms a signal to your body and the old house you live in that the time has come to extinguish the last lamp. Wrap yourself in wool or cotton. Tuck yourself in between your two familiar shrouds. Turn out the light, and with a certain sense of relief, put both your love and your shame to bed. And know, like you have always known, like you will forever know, that from the very roof of your mouth to the utmost bottom of your pelvic floor, that you were never alone. God damn. Sometimes I'm disappointed in the applause. It's like, you'll be like, God damn. That was good. Next up, Richard Fine. He needs no introduction. Give it up. Word count program. It's like a doctor's scale. But instead of weights, words slide from left to right. In inverse popularity. The more common the word, the smaller the number and the further to the left. According to word count, Conquistador is least popular at 86,800. That's as far right as the mouse can point to on the scale. We have Cortez and Guzzaro to thank, and Montezuma waiting for his revenge. Revenge is 6,737. Forgiveness, 12,372. Revenge by far is the preferred word. Love is 384. And hate, 3,107. Love is approximately 10 times more popular than hate. We should take comfort in that. But the nasty word nigger is 20,210. True, it's thousands to the right. Yet for that word to be left anywhere on the scale is wrong. And nasty is 4,673. War is 304, but alas, peace is 1,155. But there's always hope, and hope is 534. The is the leftmost word, 
and first article of the English language, mouthed by millions a billion times a day. Word count speaks the vernacular of our times. This sliding scale of lexicography diagnoses our era. Nigga, war, hate, revenge should be shoved so far to the right that they fall off the scale. But we need a real badass to kick them off. Those noxious nouns, acrimonious adjectives, and antagonistic adverbs. So where is good old badass on this scale? Nowhere. And nowhere's rank is 3,790. Hell, badass is so badass it kicked its badass self off this badass scale. White collar Sisyphus. Hell is not only pushing backbreaking boulders up endless stairs. Maybe could do the trick. <laughs> Stacks of them, piles of them, mountains. Even as a little boy, I wanted to be not a fireman, cowboy, home run king, or astronaut, but a juggler, a juggler of paper, a juggler of books. Now I'm a wheeler dealer, prestidigitator, composer of false confidences. My stage is a well-earned spacious office overlooking the park. I seduce with affidavits, audacious audits, receipts, business annual reports, and one or two of those props are actually legit. My piece de resistance is my perspective for suckers, um, investors. <laughs> They're my devoted audience of fast buck losers. Presto! I make silver dollars and gold bullion flicker like desert barrages. I keep them thirsty, always thirsty, their parched mouths, soothed not by cool water, but by hot sand. And the perpetual promise of what's over the very next dune. Most importantly, they must remember, always more elbow grease, uh, elbow grease when shining my shoes. Why should God be CEO? I should be trumpeted as head of this terra firma, for I've drowned all the rest while my head is still above water. But those three-letter devils with their ballpoint pitchforks, IRS, FBI, SEC, make me paranoid about even one overlooked, unshredded paper, or handcuffs patiently loom over my Rolex. But for now, I'm comfy in my spacious office overlooking the park. Yes, the devil teases with three samples, but his steady paycheck must be earned. So hell is not pushing back-breaking boulders up endless stairs. Paper could do the tricks, stacks of them, Picks of them, piles of them, mountains. Who says I haven't stained my white collar with a working man's honest sweat? Thank you, Richard. Because Amy Zirkle's here. Negative. Next up is a Yop debuter, I believe. Get up for Dalila Mendez. Dalila, 
I was ready to correct you, but yeah, that felt good. Um, I'm gonna get it right. So this is my first ever um, open mic, and. two poems. The first one is Dark Memories. Dark, crisp memories of the night to escape. I never might. This world is wicked indeed. My positivity only drowned by the roots of the ground. The reality of death is profound. This kills me every day. I haunt my own soul, knowing it will never go away. Lioness. I fell in love with a lion, pretending to be a lamb. I thought I was safe in a place where evil lived. I had found the wrong mate. I searched and searched. He was out lying, deceiving, cheating. False pretenses left me grieving. But now I'm a lioness, pretending to be a princess, searching, lurking in the muddy earth, waiting to find my own turf to strike and to end the fantasy that you could ever end up as your majesty. Thank you, Dalida. Next up, Brooklyn Poets Yop legend, give it up for Robert Gibbons. Imagine the movement of a dancer, a mirth, or a martha. Not a rehearsal for the barters of our bodies, the river. Avon Ailey paying tribute to the Haitian king, Hippolyte. Fast, moving race car, tight. Latitudinal with attitude. With the life of a life giver. I imagine the river is a she with a name like Monocracy and Mississippi Twain's. Her terror heart rises to an apex, her breasts seismic as the she cuts through and lacerates of Appalachian. Like boom, she will have 46 abortions and 86 regurgitations. She hiccups as she picks up when she becomes 
violated as she, with her iambic pentameter, she is so spoken word like the Maurice River, her metrical mathematics, her stellar gateway with her wide mouth, grand dames and grand names when she cuts through rock. rock. I fell into her trance like a travel log, then I read Lewis and Clark by keelboats, by high water shoals and shoulders. High water bowled me over river. What matters is your inside. Maya said a rock, a tree, a river. I want to wade in your deeper deep. Then I'll peek beneath your skirt. As regal as Jack Cousteau, I want to sailboat you. I want to gloat in your waves, river. I want a riverboat ride. I want to tip that island. I want you with all your archipelagos and perpendicular with your panhandles and insularity. I can't find the language for you, river. I just want to be managed, river. I can't, can't be your prostitute. Lost in your bounty. I want to ride that boat. I want to ride that boat. Pleasure me, river. Be religious then. Baptize me, make me holy believer, sacred space for the native. Then I'll cast my ashes, a tree, a river, a rock, a trinity. I want you to just river me, just river me. Problems in the video, I don't know if you remember. Good. He's right downstairs. <laughs> Not only a good poet, but speaks well in promo videos. <laughs> okay, enough banter. Next vote up. Give it up for Joe Nasta. Hi, I'm Joe. Um, I'm going to read a poem called American Spirit. American spirit cigarette smell is ground up leaves with black dirt, burnt, rough tongue probes taste is same, too strong, with force that made me hesitate, then decide I didn't mind. Only one thing to offer, just one thing to use. No way, just one drink, then leave, but then I was lit. Aaron's head shaped bald, but tanned from weeks in California desert. I was making music, but you just can't get a start, you know? Oh, pop music, you hate it, we all do. And blurry from one, two, three quick drinks. Chubby cheeks were coconuts in palmas tree. Thick thighs were chunks of smooth, hairless bark under flicker flames of patio torches. I don't need or want him, but he wants me, and that makes me feel. Some grease kid named Tom came in torn, unwashed black denim with skateboard and drawled out words, as if this were the West Coast, and body odor like rotten potatoes. Shots on me to celebrate Tom not signing a record deal. Screw them, man. I just need to make what I need to make. Do you mind if I smoke? Aaron lit up the spirit. They are the new American, the new way. They are the artists, the hipsters, the youth. We can do what we want. We can be who we want. We are a new beat generation, lit like stars, lit by the fires of being better than everyone else. We are all rebels, creators, freedom fighters. We are happy because we're in control. We own ourselves, and we are full of boiling blood and raging sex. Bushwick died pretending to be a tiki bar. Somehow it's a cool, breezing, warm October night. Somehow I'm in Long Beach or somewhere happy, somewhere not this shithole hideaway. 
Another round, I'm shouting because I can and want to. That's the spirit, son, Tom says, because he is a jobless 28 who needs a kid to buy his drinks, which I know but don't mind because I own this place, this private beach we're on inside my mind. Aaron touched my back with sandy fingers so it vibrates my clogged up nerves the way that feeling wanted does, the way that feeling enough does, like the sharp inhale of American spirit. Forced, rough, large like tongue, but tastes like salt, cumin, and sweat syrup. Now elbows bent, hands clasped, teeth clenched for the first time, now face buried, bottom up and bow to false god, inverted. He's accepting the only offering I had to give. Now it's too much. And I'm in pain, but I asked and wanted and thought this was the only way. So I just let myself be consumed by smoke because that's the spirit. I want you to. I'd like them to while I'm inside, but I couldn't because I'd lost it. At Morgan Avenue on packed L train, a fucking hipster in rags and ratty vans stands next to me. He reeks of burnt earth he poured into his lungs. I gag. Thank you. <laughs>
He left you so broke you didn't have a choice, and later you didn't care enough to get rid of it. The second one, you shoved the tiniest trace of him into his suitcase and tote bags, took it out and shoved it back again, before he finally came and took everything across the river, and your broken heart cried, don't go, come back. He didn't listen, and he did not return. What is the sense of amassing memories when they end up aborted, unfinished, miscarried, or you can't share them with anyone because those you shared them with are no longer in your life? People say, leave the past behind, but how can you leave it behind when the past defines your present and your future when you can't forget? Because every street corner, every movie theater, every subway line, every season, every reading, every holiday, every song, every laughter, every prayer reminds you of dreams lived but unfulfilled. While you search your purse for the keys, you think of your bikini that is still in your beach bag, together with the empty sunscreen flask, the Luna card, the napkins from Nathan's, and for an instant, you manage to tell yourself that there is space between despair and bitterness, between net worth and worthless, between indifference and obsession, between knowing and not knowing, between forgetting and remembering. You just saw it in the sky. is a, a very fine poet, also a very good man, you know, when he came up, he consoled me about not only the Indians losing, but the election. So, you know, he's, he's really looking out for my emotional well-being, which I appreciate. And he's very good at adjusting the mic. So give it up for Arthur Russell. <laughs> Canted wet black stones piled outward from Brighton Beach into Rockaway Inlet with coffee and cigarette, the taste of which was ruined by the cold salt air. I went back to that place as if looking for my keys, if keys were the self who still had a say. Behind me, the six-story shtetl of bricks and heavy Jewish food backed up to the elevated subway, spine of the neighborhood, escape route bending northward over Mrs. Stahl's commissions towards Manhattan. Before me, the ocean Grandma Eva called the yam and urged me go swim, churned and threw up lattices of spume in the name of the blistered sea. My hoodie zipped, I cuffed the drips in winter nose I inherited from my father, and stiff-eyed took the wind from Breezy Point past which I'd sailed once as far as Ambrose Lightship, to see the ocean open out and offer no more answers until England. At 17, in khakis that matched my desire to run away, I swabbed locker rooms and mowed the scruffled lawn where white and red impatience 
were planted in the shape of the burgee of the Yacht Club in Sheepshead Bay, where I tendered the members to their sailboats at the moorings, and evenings when they'd all gone home, on my last run over the summer black and glassy bay, I smoked cigarettes and listened to my love on a cream-colored transistor radio with a gold-toned grill and the name Electra etched in red script beside the thumb wheel for the volume. And on race days, some of which were zenith blue, I winched the lightning boats up from their trailers, swung them over the davit over the cyclone fence where gangway sailors had still held steering lines to keep them from swinging while we lowered them down. And I followed them in the committee boat past Kingsborough College and the seaside nursing home where 40 years later my father would die, dropped anchor in the inlet and fired blanks from a cannon to start the race that sent them, a regatta of school teachers, doctors and tradesmen, and a gal with short hair who climbed telephone poles for Bell Atlantic on weekdays and the masts of a sailboat in a bosun's chair on Sunday, around a course of red and black channel markers, buoys and bells, their boats heeling over to beat up to the wind, or raising their painted spinnakers like pregnant women promenading in summer dresses, though none of this could reach me in the wretched unhappiness in which those days I bobbed and waited for the race to end. And then, as a man of 33, when I'd scuttled my first chance at poetry, after five years working with a damp towel slung over my shoulder and my arms crossed on my chest to hold the anger in as the exit manager at the Hollywood car wash on Coney Island Avenue speaking college French with the Haitians who wiped the cars and leaving there for law school, living still in Brighton, I stood on these same rocks reciting mnemonic devices to drill down jurisprudence as I prepared for the bar exam, the summer that I also came closest to dunking a basketball in the playground at Brightwater Park. And now, in the shadow of that dray career, with hips as brittle as butter chip cookies, I climb out of those, I climb out on those February rocks to stare at the sea and back at the beach and the boardwalk and the men's room underneath the boardwalk where a boy once showed me his penis and wonder where I fucked up, how I got it so wrong, how the key I turned to open the world had locked me instead into a life of absurd anxiety and indefatigable complacency. I cut my feet on a broken bottle here. I ran with my sister to catch the orange drink man. I came for the fireworks on Tuesdays and found my grandparents laughing with their neighbors in folding chairs when they were the age that I am now. I brought girls to my apartment in my red Monte Carlo. I bought sturgeon from the fish store. 
I lived across from the synagogue where you could hear the men mumble through the open windows on Yom Kippur while the women waited outside wondering how long after sunset the rabbi would hold them. And yet it is these waves from which I seek reciprocity to cancel out the noise and somewhat salve life's uncompassion. The swells on the surface of the ocean are the muscles of the earth, and the spines of the fish-eaten fish fall through the sea to what we call its bed to pretend that it sleeps. But the symbol business of the waves proceeds without regard for whom or when, because the ocean is a vast tectonic sloshing thing that answers to planets, not men. So it's uh, like after 9.15, so uh, we're not even on to the wait list yet, but I ask that uh, all the remaining lucky poets who I'm going to call, please read your best poem. One poem left for each of you. Our next poet uh, just published her first full-length collection of poems called Single Woman. In fact, I went to this really lovely book party on Friday where not only was there uh, this poet reading, but uh, there was an incredible spread of food, which is, uh, really makes you like the poetry being read. I'm not sure the poetry not already good, but uh, just one of those parties that uh, makes you really remember why you live in New York City and pay all this money. But very happy to announce that Dell has published her first book. Give it up for Dell Lemon. I have to say, this is the book, and there is a stack of them um, in the Barnes and Noble and Court Street. I walk by every day, and it doesn't get any smaller. <laughs> <laughs> not, not selling. Right, but I think they're only there another month because it's sort of in the journal section. It's technically it's a journal. Uh, but anyway, um, this is related, and uh, ironically, this poem is called After Despair. I guess despair comes in waves. So this was um, after one wave, and now we're at the beginning of another. Um, after Despair. What's it like to see the cover to your first book, and you love it more than you could have ever imagined loving the cover to your first book, because you never imagined your first book, or the cover, or that it was even possible to be a poet and get your book published. And then another poem gets published in a prestigious journal, but you're not as ecstatic as the first few times your poems got published, until you see the interview with Rick Moody, one of the writers who inspired you when you started out, and you are flipping through the journal thinking, oh my god, does my poem come right after the interview with Rick Moody? Because that would be kind of unbelievable to appear so close in print to Rick Moody. That would kind of blow the circuit board of what you ever, never could have imagined would be possible. And then your poem does appear right after the interview with Rick Moody. And it works well there. And you think the editor who placed it there must be like God or something. Giving <laughs> you a voice on the page next to Rick Moody after decades of despair with no voice anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
off the wait list. They're still singing downstairs. God damn. Next up is Nawal Maradovich. Give it up for Nawal. during a thunderstorm. And I wondered if he knew how I've been trained to fight demons twice his size inside my own head. How I've spent my whole life accepting chipped teacups of love and treating them like crystals. How I wait for the splinters to make a home inside my soul just so I can show off the calluses. How I've taught myself to treat relationships like a never-ending sparring match, and treat sparring matches like dances, like every right hook is the right kiss on my cheek, like I bob and weave to the music of my mistakes. And don't get me wrong, I fight because I choose to stay in the ring until I tap, tap, tap my way out. Did I say tap? I meant break. Break like a rib. Break like spring and warm beaches. Break like the waves of an ocean during a thunderstorm. He said, there's a toughness in you, and I broke like the waves of an ocean during a thunderstorm. Thank you, Anal. Sorry, thank you, Nawal. <laughs> Uh, great poem, great shirt. <laughs> Buy one of those back there. So, uh, our last poem of the evening. God help me, I'm going to get this name right tonight. Timothy Wojcik. Yeah! Yeah! That's okay. Okay, uh, this is called Happiness or a conversation. Hello. No, please. How are you? How have you been living in the world with so many trees around? Look, they are growing so much it hurts. Where did you consume things last? And where are those things in process now along the bodily conveyor belt? Please sit. It has been so long. It feels like a hundred years, which is 78 years longer than I have been vibrant and vibrating through my chest. Get a load of this hilarious horse farm I invented just now in my head. It has at least 10 horses, and at least six of those horses are over 10 feet tall, and at least four of those horses are under three feet tall. And it's like an optical illusion, is what I'm trying to say. You never know how close or how far a horse is at any given moment. It's all about perspective, somebody once told me. I forget. 
Hey, please stay. I promise to be more engaged and present, sitting here and bursting like a balloon at altitude. It's what I'm trying to tell you, that if you get high enough, if you're able to really get up there, then you and I can feel the bursting, like those commercials say that foods do. But there, that's with chemicals, then a specific order produce flavor. I know things are hideous sometimes, but look at the exploding trees and tell me about your difficult day. I'm absolutely dying to hear. Thank you, Timothy Boychik. Well done. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to keep saying it. Boychik. Uh, thank you for coming. Remember to vote for Poem of the Month for November 718-374-1953. This is the last Poem of the Month you can vote for in 2016. Next December, December 12th, is the EOP. Yeah, I looked it up. December 12th is the Brooklyn Poets EOP, the final one of 2016. We'll have a workshop as usual, and we will have a slightly shortened open mic then the last part of the open mic will be for the 12 winners of the Poem of the Month Award for 2016 and December 2015. So be here for that. It should be a great night. Uh, please contribute to the Brooklyn Poets Anthology crowdfunding campaign if you would like to. Or spread the word. It goes on until November 29th, which is Giving Tuesday, uh, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I uh, just wanted to say thank you for coming. Again, I know it's a difficult time for, for a lot of you. Hopefully all of you. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, but in some way, also hopelessly. Uh, but uh, I really am glad to be here tonight and to hear some of the poems. I, I was watching somebody back there, like, somebody was writing lines, lines of poems. She was either writing lines of poems down or plagiarizing, <laughs> stealing, stealing all of your best lines. But uh, and I saw some people there writing as well. So uh, I just love that activity of seeing poets uh, doing the work, uh, sort of like, on the ground, underground, uh, despite uh, the people in power that we, we do not like. Uh, so thank you for coming. Uh, December 12th, last year of the year, and uh, be safe. Thank you. Brooklyn Poets Yop Open Mic for November 14th, 2016. Thanks to Miller Oberman for leading our workshop and kicking off the open mic. And congrats to Julia Knobloch for her poem, Daylight Saving Time, winning our November Yop Poem of the Month by audience vote. Next month, December 12th, 2016, our final yawp of the year, and a very special one indeed. Our 12 Poem of the Month winners over the past year will compete in our Poem of the Year Smackdown for the coveted honor of Poem of the Year. We will also be crowning our Yawper of the Year, given to a poet who kicks ass on the mic and on the page and who is a great supporter 
of other poets in our community as well. So definitely come out to the Yop on December 12th, 2016. Not one to be missed. Poet Jessica Greenbaum, one of our faculty members, will be leading the workshop. So we hope to see you there. Till next time.